Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 31, which happens to correspond with the week of July 17, 2023. This week, we're going to look at asthma part two, iron deficiency anemia, and iron the mineral in general. Okay, so in part two of our story on asthma, allergies, and nutrition, we're going to look at the nutritional studies. We know that the foods that we consume affect our intestinal microbiome, our immune system, our metabolism, and therefore have a significant effect on inflammation in general. Is this knowledge translatable to asthma and allergies? Let us look specifically at nutrition as it relates to asthma. Are there specific diet studies available that lead us toward a unified diet for better asthma health? Can we make good recommendations for our patients on a macronutrient basis with fats, carbohydrates, and protein ratios and types? Do we have data to support certain micronutrient needs in asthma and how a diet could provide these nutrients? How much can we trust the data? There are true and legitimate reasons why nutritional studies are difficult to use. One, a single macronutrient or micronutrient study doesn't reflect normal life as we consume foodstuffs synergistically in random quantities. Two, it is hard to adequately power a nutritional study to show statistical significance. Three, animal studies are unlikely to reflect human reactions exactly, making generalizability quite difficult. Four, genome-wide association studies give us data that show how genetically and metabolomically unique humans are, making it difficult to draw conclusions again. And five, patient compliance with diet interventions is notoriously poor, begging the question that if compliance is good in a study, was a patient already on a different path than the average American? And this doesn't even bring into account frequency recall studies or food recall studies, which are notoriously inaccurate. So there's a lot to be said here. But Knowing that the above statements are likely true, we will press on with the data as it exists because we have no better options. Imperfect data is better, I think, than no data at all. Let's start by defining the large macro type diets. The three main dietary types that have been reasonably well studied in human disease are the DASH, which is diet approaches to stop hypertension, the Mediterranean diet, and the Western or otherwise known as standard American diet. Many people are looking at the keto diet and the paleo diet for help these days. However, they have some data in relation to neurological disease and cancer, but none that I could find in relation to asthma and allergies. Three main diets. The DASH diet is based on eating lots of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. Fish, poultry, legumes, nuts, seeds, and vegetable oils are a large part of this diet. It is very limited in refined and processed carbohydrate foods. It is low in saturated fats. It is well studied and has shown significant benefit in reducing hypertension and cardiovascular disease. The Mediterranean diet is based on foods eaten in the Mediterranean Sea region. It is filled with vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, olive oil, fish, and full-fed dairy products. It is lower in non-fish meats and processed foods of all types. Its predominant benefit which is highly touted by integrative and functional medicine physicians, is the beneficial load of antioxidant vegetables and fruits along with a healthy balanced fat profile and limited refined pro-inflammatory carbohydrates. It is also low with fiber feeding the intestinal microbiome and reducing inflammation systemically. The Western, or what I call standard American diet or SAD diet, is popular clearly in the United States 
and is composed of large volumes of highly processed flour and sugar-based foods, red and processed meats, sugar-laden beverages, dairy, eggs, and poultry. It is largely a convenience and taste-based diet that our American population thoroughly enjoys. Unfortunately, it is highly associated with inflammation and chronic diseases in humans. So those are the diets defined. Let's begin to dissect the studies and see if we can come to any conclusions around asthma and the asthma sufferers on what should we eat and what should we not eat. So there is a paucity of evidence for the DASH diet that there is an effect on asthma prevalence or morbidity because it has not been studied other than a pilot study in poorly controlled asthma that showed a non-statistically significant reduction in symptom scores. The known benefits to cardiovascular disease are not immediately translatable to asthma, so essentially the DASH diet has no data to offer as relates to asthma and allergies, but it does have data to offer that shows that it is good at reducing inflammation and cardiovascular disease, so there's probably some benefit there if it ever gets studied. Probably the biggest benefit is that it's not the standard American diet, and that I think is across the board for all diets. The Mediterranean diet is the best and most studied of all the positive, i.e. thought to be beneficial diets. When it comes to the onset and prevalence of asthma, the Mediterranean diet has mixed results. It has positive results in asthma morbidity. Other studies that look just at vegetable and fruit intake noted improved asthma symptoms with increased intake. The mechanisms biochemically for this effect would be that vegetables and fruits have high volumes of antioxidants that protect the cells, especially the mitochondria, from oxidative damage. Finally, the infamous Western diet is believed to be associated with worsening asthma, but this is weakly associated in the studies. The best summary of the available data is as it relates to macro diets and asthma is that increasing the intake of vegetables and fruits in the diet has strong evidence for benefit. The diversity of whole foods taken in is the key to the best possible outcome. When it comes to preventing asthma in children through pregnancy, the data is a little bit better and improving with studies like the Grow Baby Project that we've talked about in the past and others. The key here remains a diverse, minimally processed diet with lots of vegetables and fruits and limited sugars. Hypothetically, but not proven, it is most likely the Western diet is not beneficial and the DASH and Mediterranean diets are beneficial. The lack of diet, the lack of diet data on the Western Standard American style diet and asthma does not take away from the known mechanistic pathways of this diet inducing inflammation and immune dysregulation that could affect asthma patient, especially as it relates to fructose, uric acid, inflammasomes, and the immune system, as well as excessive saturated fatty acids, the microbiome, and inflammation. Full well, knowing that the nutritional studies are incomplete as they relate to asthma specifically, let's attack this issue of diet and asthma from another angle, inflammation. The available best quality nutritional data is that what decreases total body inflammation and excess weight gain will decrease the disease burden, whether it is cardiac, pulmonary, or gastroenterologic disease. Interestingly, obese individuals have a 92% increased risk of asthma. Therefore, one would presume that what drives obesity may also drive asthma morbidity in at least a subset of the population? Is there a surrogate population that has a rapid change in weight and also asthma disease? The obese population that undergoes bariatric surgery is this specific group. They undergo a rapid metabolic change that is a perfect surrogate for a dietary change. Post-bariatric surgery patient outcomes note that asthma steroid medicine needs drop post-surgery by 40%. The reason at first blush was thought to be related to decreased caloric intake. 
and straight weight loss. However, a deeper dive into the pathophysiology of gastric bypass has proven that surgical induced shifts in the microbiome's bacterial makeup and subsequent inflammatory response is at the root of this disease improvement. The microbiome shift can also be achieved by dramatically changing the diet. So for me, this is actually sort of a way of looking at this and saying, okay, if we have this population of bariatric surgery patients, whereby the diet is changed because of the surgery, i.e. you can't take in the same volume that is problematical, then maybe there's something to be said here. What remains fascinating and actually logical is that those individuals with severe excess weight and asthma but no severe metabolic syndrome will benefit from bariatric surgically significantly because they are removing the voluminous food inputs of disease. For those that have developed full metabolic syndrome and likely continue liquid fructose and sucrose bad calories despite having the volume of food taken away, the effects are negated post-surgery. And that actually was looked at in a study by Forno et al. 2021. So for me, this comes down to the study data that anything that leads to metabolic derangements in the bloodstream and immune dysregulation will improve post-correction if the inputs can be modified appropriately, i.e. you don't ruin the surgery by taking everything as a liquid that's unhealthy. Bariatric surgery is one such method. For me, this is the key to why diet and asthma are intimately tied. I firmly believe that the processed foods and liquid sugars are driving metabolic derangements that are worsening most disease, including asthma. This may be the key to understanding how diet and asthma are linked since the epidemiological data is moderate to weak. The emerging strong evidence that the microbiome drives inflammation and disease morbidity is critical in making decisions where they are related to nutrition. Now we must continue to follow the data as it evolves in regards to what dietary influences have the most profound positive effect on the intestinal microbiome and thus inflammation, endotoxemia, and asthma. To write that piece and talk about it, there are a lot of articles that were cited. So if you're interested in looking at any specific article, go to salisburypediatrics.com, go to the Health and Wellness tab, and pull up this article, which is entitled Asthma and Allergies, Nutrition, and the Story, Part 2, and all the links are available. Section two, iron deficiency anemia is a big deal in U.S. teens. A new study from JAMA, we see the following. Massive volumes of young women are having insufficient iron levels in their bloodstream based on two metrics, anemia and iron storage as ferritin. With a ferritin cutoff of 50 milligrams per liter, which is ideal for neurologic function and blood cell synthesis, the prevalence of insufficiency was 77%. Frank iron deficiency anemia was noted in 17% of patients when the hemoglobin cutoff was 12.5. The study noted that even prepubertal girls had suboptimal iron levels. This is a concern because it points to dietary deficiencies of intake absorption or storage, which then has a feed-forward worry of other micronutrient cofactor deficiencies. With insufficient iron, we see fatigue, sleep parasomnias, increased infections, inflammation, and general mood depression in children. This is a serious concern for the ability to have a quality pregnancy as well as for those young women planning to do so. A little background science here. Our bodies excrete very little iron because iron metabolism is tightly regulated through the hormone hepcidin. Hepcidin controls iron levels by blocking dietary iron absorption, promoting cellular iron sequestration, thus reducing bio iron bioavailability when body iron stores are sufficient to meet requirements or when the body is under attack of a pathogen. The system knows that pathogens like bacteria use iron in replication of metabolism, thus reducing its bioavailability through hepcidin's action is beneficial during infection. 
This is a great benefit. However, under inflammation or inflammatory conditions that are not infectious, like autoimmunity, hepcidin will be active to our detriment. My take-home point here is as follows. Get a ferritin level drawn on your preteen and teen as a risk for staying suboptimal for iron is high for both boys and girls. If the level is high, that is usually a marker of systemic inflammation or infection and is not useful for iron assessment. If it is low, it is diagnostic of iron need. Number two, maximize the intake of foods that are iron-containing as well as vitamins A and C for synergistic absorptive effect. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in section three. Number three, double your food-based iron intake if you are vegan or vegetarian as plant-based iron is much less bioavailable. Four, keep inflammation-based diseases under control through diet, medicine, supplement use, sleep, and general lifestyle actions that are healthy, as discussed in this newsletter. Section three. This is an article I wrote a while ago. I'm sort of repurpose it for the purposes of this piece because iron is so important. Iron is a mineral primarily necessary for carrying oxygen around the body via hemoglobin, which is a protein that carries oxygen for our red blood cells. It is also found in storage form called ferritin in our liver, spleen, and bone marrow as myoglobin in our muscles. It's critical for the function of oxygen transport, muscle metabolism, neurologic, and intracellular signal transmission. It is also critical for hormone function, growth, and development. Iron is critical to learning and developing as a baby and a toddler. Iron is used by white blood cells as well as microbes in metabolism and inflammation for killing capacity by generating oxygen radicals like hydrogen peroxide in humans. There was a time when restricting iron was a technique to enhance immunity by depriving microbes of their metabolic need. Infants and teenagers need the most iron daily due to rapid growth. Females that menstruate need even more. Most people may actually need more than this to support optimal function. Dietary sources of iron come in two forms, heme and non-heme. Heme iron is found primarily in animal muscle, including fish. Non-heme is found in vegetables, beans, nuts, and grains. The distinction is important for utilization perspective. Heme iron is much more bioavailable than vegetable-based non-heme iron. Vegetarians need 2x or more non-heme iron to get the same effect. Vitamins A and C, as stated, are critical for enhancing the absorption and utilization of non-heme iron. Eating vegetables along with meats also enhances the non-heme utilization. Hence, the reason for a balanced diet at all meals. Phytic acid can decrease absorption. Foods loaded with phytic acid like unsoaked beans and grains will reduce the absorption of non-heme iron in food and supplements. Certain polyphenols found in teas and vegetables can also have the same inhibitory effect. Calcium can inhibit iron absorption. Keep those supplements away from each other. Deficiency states occur with inadequate iron intake and certain diseases. Acute or chronic blood loss is a common cause of iron deficiency. GI malabsorption diseases like celiac, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis are common cause of concern with iron. People from third world countries can experience iron deficiency from parasitic disease. Symptoms of deficiency include fatigue, anemia, pallor, which is pale skin, mental fog, restless sleep, temperature regulation issues, and immune system depression. ADHD or tension deficit hyperactivity disorder and other neurologic problems are worsened by low levels of iron. For me, the real concern with iron is in insufficiency state. Many children suffer from learning dysfunction, sleep parasomnias, attention issues, fatigue, and general weakness. Checking an iron level and aiming for 50 nanograms per ml is optimal. 
Iron in the supplemental form is very useful but dangerous in overdose. All iron supplements should be stored clear of children's access. Acute iron toxicity will cause vomiting, stomach pains, organ failure, seizures, and eventually death. Iron and zinc should not be taken at the same time as iron reduces zinc's absorption. Iron supplements affect drugs including thyroid and acid medicines. Consult your pharmacist when using these medicines and taking iron supplements. If you have any of the above symptoms, I recommend a standard cellular blood count or CBC and a ferritin level. I do not recommend supplements unless advised by a provider. Iron is an oxidant and can promote inflammation in excessive state and, as stated earlier, can cause severe liver disease. This is not a joke, one to be messed around with. You can't take this supplement willy-nilly. Work hard to get adequate heme and non-heme iron through your diet primarily, roughly 11 grams daily for adults. And make sure you are taking vitamin C-rich foods as well. These include citrus fruits, red, yellow, and orange vegetables, especially peppers, as, as well as cabbages. Cooking in a cast iron skillet will also help increase some iron levels. As well as the other pieces, the links to the informational articles and websites are in the SalisburyPediatrics.com website. Song of the Week, It Will Rain by Bruno Mars. That's an excellent song. He is a quite impressive, quite impressive artist. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. As always, hug those kids. My thoughts for this week. I love this quote by Tim Ferriss. Happiness, a butterfly which when pursued seems always just beyond your grasp. But if you sit down quietly, may alight upon you. And then for me, this says patience, presence, and persistence are the three P's of any successful endeavor. Have a great day.